Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola with another podcast from Cardiology, Cardiology Trials Substack. Hey, everyone. This is Mohamed Ruzia, and today we'll be discussing the CAST trial and the ICC-3 trial. We'll start by summarizing the CAST trial. The CAST trial stands for Cardiac Arrhythmia Suppression Trial, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1991. To give you a little background, in the 1980s, the suppression of premature ventricular contractions or PVCs post-myocardial infarction via the use of antiarrhythmic drugs was considered the standard of care. The practice was based on pathophysiologic rationale that PVC burden is a strong risk factor for sudden and non-sudden cardiac death following myocardial infarction, and thus suppression must reduce death. The CAST trial sought to test the hypothesis that suppression of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic PVCs with antiarrhythmic therapy with inkinide, flicinide, or morisizine after myocardial infarction would reduce the risk of death due to arrhythmia. The CAST trial was the first large RCT to test this. Patients were eligible for enrollment six days to two years post myocardial infarction with an average of six or more PVCs per hour on ambulatory monitoring and no runs of ventricular tachycardia of 15 beats or more. An ejection fraction of 55% or less was required within 90 days of myocardial infarction or ejection fraction of 40% or less if patients were recruited after 90 days of myocardial infarction. There was a run-in phase where only patients who had at least 80% suppression of PVCs during the initial open-label titration period were enrolled. Patients were randomly assigned to receive either the antiarrhythmic drugs or matching placebo. The primary endpoint of the trial was death or cardiac arrest due to arrhythmia. The use of inkinide and flicinide was discontinued by the Data and Safety Monitoring Board because the data indicated that it was unlikely that benefit could be demonstrated and it was likely that the drugs were harmful. The original CAST trial reports data on patients assigned to inkinide and flicinide. Morisizine use was continued and would be reported separately in the revised CAS-2 trial. Overall, 1498 patients were randomized to receive either flicinide, inkinide, or their matching placebo, and they were followed for an average of 10 months. The use of antiarrhythmic therapy significantly increased the relative risk of the primary endpoint of death or cardiac arrest due to arrhythmia. The rate of events for the primary outcome was 5.7% in the antiarrhythmics arm and 2.2% in the placebo arm. This translates to a relative risk of 2.6 and a highly significant p-value. The number needed to harm was approximately 29. In conclusion, 
the caste trial unexpectedly demonstrated that the treatment of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic PVCs in post-myocardial infarction patients with inkinide or flicinide increased death and cardiac arrests. So guys, I actually think the CAS trial is one of the most important trials in all of medicine. And I'm just wondering if uh, any of you have any comments about just the importance of CAST. Yeah, I mean, CAST is um, a seminal trial for many reasons. Uh, well, for a few main reasons. One of them, uh, and the point was made um, in, their, in the review post, that this is really the first major, major, um, what I consider to be medical reversal that we've come to uh, in the trials that we've reviewed, maybe it's one of the first major medical reversals. Uh, now, and we talked about a couple things so far that may may have been surprising to to listeners and readers. For example, TPA wasn't necessarily better than streptokinase, even though TPA kind of became the overwhelming favorite in the market, probably because of 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 marketing. Um, but at the same time, TPA compared to streptokinase, while well, may not have been better, it wasn't really killing people. And this was really the first, I think, first thing that comes to my mind when I think of a medical practice that became entrenched based on pathophysiologic reasoning that when it was tested in a clinical trial, wasn't just not better than doing nothing or a more conservative thing, but um, it really harmed people. And in fact, the harm signal in this trial was a number needed to harm less than 30 to increase the chance of essentially death or a cardiac arrest. And, and that's a major, major harm signal, especially when you consider that number needed to harm is it's approaching what um, aspirin and thrombolytic agents were separately in terms of their number needed to treat to reduce death uh, for patients who had ST segment elevation MI. So that's a that's a really big signal of harm. And of course, we would have never we would have never appreciated that had we not done the CAS trial. And I think it showed us that you have to, well, at least some people, I think it really showed the showed us the importance of testing medical interventions in clinical trials because pathophysiologic reasoning treating surrogate endpoints uh, is simply not enough uh, in terms of, of trying to understand the effect of our interventions and therapies. Yeah, Andrew, I, 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 I'll just give you a historical perspective. I mean, when I began medical school it was when CAS was enrolling and I remember CCUs and I remember people having ectopy and having non-sustained VT and thinking that, you know, we had observational studies that showed that ventricular ectopy increased the risk of death. So in other words, if you were post-MI and you had non-sustained VT or PVCs, you had a higher risk. And so everybody thought, you know, we have these drugs that really squelch these arrhythmias. So if we treat this marker, 
And, you know, you talk about plausibility, uh, and and yes, it was a plausible biologic, biologic thing, but there was also observational studies that showed that PVCs were associated with increased mortality. And then, you know, in 1991, um, uh, we, we, we learned this and it was just a shocker for the, for the, for the cardiology community. And just as you said, it was, the study was done to show benefit. I mean, it was a superiority trial. And you can look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, and and within three months, the Kaplan-Meier curves are separating. And we, you 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 say the number needed to harm it was really the number needed to kill, essentially, because the primary endpoint was mostly mostly death. And so the the thing that we did for a decade, treating this surrogate endpoint with drugs, that was the standard. Like if you didn't do it, you were in trouble, or if you even questioned it, you were like a, a pariah. And uh, so the expert consensus was totally wrong. And we were killing people from our expert consensus. And uh, I just, it's, it's sort of, I think it's really affected the way I approach all of medicine is really because when I came into being, uh, the beginning of my training was, was treating, treating ventricorectopy with antiarrhythmic drugs because it was bad. And then we learned that it was, that that it was harmful what we were doing. So it was just a striking trial. So I think we learned specific lessons that no, we shouldn't use antiarrhythmics in post my patients. That's a good thing to know. But I think the the general lesson, the 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 knowledge, the epistemic uh, uh, lesson was even greater that we absolutely need to test things that we think uh, work and that also that we that experts believe are true. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really think in in this regard, it was it was the most important trial of that I've ever seen in medicine. Do you feel like, um, I mean, at least for me, you know, a trial like this sort of is front and center in my mind when I think about when I think about uh, you know medical interventions and when I think about whether what's the way to put this you know when I think about our standard practices do they really have evidence to support them but I mean we probably have some particular bias about sort of erring on the side of the null hypothesis I think we're more skeptical probably in general um maybe than average but do you think that it's made that big of a difference on the field and on the practice that i'm not so sure about um and in fact most time most residents that i talk to most medical students and even most younger uh, junior attendings really don't know about this trial i mean it's to me, it's sort of like, how could you not know about this trial? Like they might know like, oh, you don't use class 1C antiarrhythmic drugs in patients with ischemic heart disease, which is sort of, uh, you know, it's obviously it's based on this trial, but but it's, <laughs> I, I don't feel like they really have any, um, they don't know the trial. But this is the whole point of this project, isn't it? The whole point of this project is 
that a young cardiology trainee, a, a young person, a person of Dr. Rousier's era or just underneath, they're just younger than that, they take it for granted that we don't use antiarrhythmic drugs in the in these patients because it's just not what we do. But what the way that it came to be was the CAS trial. And I think that uh, the idea of looking back at these trials is not just historical or what, uh, you know, just sort of academic. It's to, to learn about how we think about what we do. And I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's super important for young trainees. In fact, I'm going to give a lecture this Friday about controversies in cardiology and we'll show some of these trials and, and show some of the thinking at the time. And young, young doctors are so, you know, interested in learning how to move a catheter or how to measure this thing on an echo or that thing or whatever. But uh, going back and looking at these trials and the way they shaped practice at the time and thinking is super important. And I think that's really speaks to the importance of this project. Yeah, you know what else it makes me, what it sometimes makes me almost sad about when I think about this trial and when I think about the training of cardiologists and, and just doctors in general, um, you say like, what, what do trainees, what do they really care about and what are we emphasizing to them as like teachers and as a profession? And instead of emphasizing the importance of lessons from a trial like CAST, and then teaching critical appraisal and really emphasizing critical appraisal and evidence translation. Instead, wasting time is that's using that, that's too strong. But how much time are we making trainees spend learning things that are not even supported by strong evidence? And and I guess I'll go there right now. But I mean, our, our trainees spend so much time learning about something like like how to image the left atrial appendage for something like a watchman. And I, and I just think like, you know, they don't, I, I'd rather them be able to tell me about the protect and prevail trials and, you know, talk about those and understand the design and maybe the limitations and um, what, <laughs> I guess I would just leave it at that. But instead of spending all this time learning how to image the left atrial appendage for this particular intervention. And the reason I bring up cast is because of the, basically the dance that, that was involved with essentially like monitoring for ventricular arrhythmia and suppressing ventricular arrhythmias. It's almost like, to me, to some extent, it's like what we're teaching people about imaging the left atrial appendage. You know, it's like you have to do it, you know, forget forget the the big picture, which is, does this thing actually work? Um, which people, you know, we've glossed over that, but there's just assume that it does. And now let's learn about all the minutia of how to image it and make sure, you know, it, you know, is it leaking uh 10% or something like that? And it's like, you know, for, forget the big picture, which is, does this thing actually work? And I, maybe you remember some of that from your training, but like the intensity around monitoring for ventricular arrhythmias and suppressing them and what agents do you use and how do you like start them and titrate them i i would imagine that was a, a major part of training back then you know like in the whole thing it's sort of like 
I mean, to some extent, it was a waste of time because we didn't actually focus on the more important question first. Yeah, I mean, but the exactly the it did take a long time to learn how to use antiarrhythmic drugs and to learn the pharmacology and to learn how they affected the conduction, the QRS duration, and in all of that business. And and I, I mean, Andrew, you you mentioned left atrial appendage closure, but I'll also say that it takes many, many months uh, to get facile in doing afib ablation and uh, learning how to do a transeptal, learning how to, you know, counterclockwise or clockwise torque the catheter and learning the feel of doing all these ablation lesions to ablate atrial fibrillation. But yet we have very, very uh, 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 weak evidence that that does any good for patients. Um, and And again, going back to the so the purpose of this project is to uh, really look at, you know, seminal trials and 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 what they actually show. So, yes, I in all these reasons, in all these reasons, in one of my messages to 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 everyone who listens is that it's always worth going back and reading these reading these papers. And I mean, if you read the editorial of this of this. Um, of the CAS trial in, in New England. I mean, it was quite sobering. Uh, I mean, they it really caught the it really it really caught the 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 profession by surprise. And but I but I would also would I also would agree with you that some of these things are lost on 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 the current generation. But that's the point of this podcast, and that's the point of this um, of this project. Yeah, and I would but, like to add one thing. I mean, the CASA trial was very important, but I want, uh, you know, trainees and students and, you know, everyone who listens to us understand the importance of having a randomized trial with a placebo arm. I mean, for so many years, we had all these studies and we did not know that antiarrhythmics or class 1C antiarrhythmics post-MI increase mortality. Yes. yes. Great Thank point. you. Great. Thank you for that comment because... One of the problems in modern medicine is that we we shred equipoise, right? We say that we can't possibly randomize this to no therapy. This is one of the problems with left atrial appendage occlusion, right? People are afraid to randomize uh, patients from appendage closure to no therapy who have bleeding problems. They're like, you have to do something. But here in, in CAST, you were lucky if you were randomized to placebo and no therapy. You were... You were you were uh, uh, substantially less likely to die if you were randomized to placebo, and so I think that I, I really appreciate that comment because we maybe have these priors of this bias that no therapy is 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 really bad, and that we we shouldn't we 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 shouldn't have that. But I think what cast and and the HRT trials and many trials have shown is that uh, sometimes no therapy, we should we should be more respectful of equipoise, especially when the evidence before is is weak. And and one of the things that opened my eyes with the first chapter of this substack was the whole the whole beta blocker after MI chapter. I mean, uh, again, I, I there are ongoing trials now of, of, of withdrawal of beta blockers after MI, and I think that they'll show that um, they'll show that there's minimal benefit or no benefit to to using beta blockers in MI in in this era. And again, 
they're going to be placebo controlled. So I couldn't agree more. And I, I guess one more point kind of to piggyback on that, which is another goal of this project is in showing people who the, you know, who the clinical trials really apply to and to emphasize the external validity and the generalizability of the results. And keep in mind that if the trials are, are limited in that regard, meaning they apply to uh, a limited selection of patients with a particular condition, not those who are maybe the oldest, the sickest, um, and maybe who don't necessarily represent the standard patients we see in clinic, or let's just say they may not represent a particular phenotype of patients that we see commonly with a particular condition. Um, and when we don't have trials specifically for those people, uh, we probably you know need to be careful about extrapolating and just assuming that the results in a target population or in a clinical trial would apply. Um, and again, the only way to know is when you test those hypotheses with clinical trials and something like the CAS trial, I think just really opens your eyes to the possibility that um, that you could be wrong. Uh, and maybe that we shouldn't assume um, what we think works, works. And, and, and speaking to external validity and, and the whole issue of run-in periods, I mean, the CAS trial had a very important run-in period where you were not randomized in CAS unless you had suppression of the arrhythmias. And so I think that really helped the external validity or generalizability of it because uh, if they had just, just given this drug and we didn't know whether it was suppressing the PVCs, then it it, it may be more difficult to apply. Um, but but here we had only patients who had the achieved goal of suppressing the ventricular arrhythmia that were randomized. Um, because if they just randomized everybody who got the drug, it may not have been as strongly positive. Um, uh, well, I don't know what would have happened, but it... it the run-in period here really was important. Should we move to the ISIS-3 trial? Yes. Let me first remind our audience about the ISIS-3 trial. The ISIS-3 trial was published in The Lancet in 1992. As we discussed in prior weeks, results from the JC and ISIS-2 trials demonstrated a clear benefit for the early opening of acutely blocked arteries with, fibri with fibrinolytic treatment in patients with ST elevation myocardial infarctions. However, after opening a blocked artery, concern for re-occlusion re persisted, especially in the first several days to week, and experts postulated that antithrombotic therapy with heparin could improve outcomes compared to the use of aspirin alone. The third study from the ICC group sought to attest the hypothesis that therapeutic heparin plus aspirin reduced mortality compared to aspirin alone in patients treated with early fibrinolytic therapy. The investigators also tested whether different fibrinolytic regimens were safer and more effective compared to each other. Since the treatment with fibrinolytic therapy is no longer the standard of care in most places, 
and no significant differences in fibrinolytic regimens were ultimately reported. We will focus on the heparin plus aspirin versus aspirin alone portions of the study. Patients were eligible for the ICC-3 trial if they were thought to be within 24 hours of the onset of symptoms of suspected or definite acute myocardial infarction with or without ECG changes, and if they had no definite contraindications to fibrinolytic therapy. All patients were randomly assigned to one of the three fibrinolytic treatments, as well as to either heparin plus aspirin or aspirin alone. The primary endpoint of the trial was intended to be the va vascular mortality within the first five weeks. However, the investigators ended up reporting all-cause mortality since nonvascular mortality was rare and divided evenly between groups. The trial showed that there was no significant difference in mortality for patients assigned to heparin plus aspirin versus aspirin alone. The outcome occurred in 10.3% patients in the heparin plus aspirin group and 10.6% patients in the aspirin alone group with a non-significant p-value. Non-cerebral bleeding was increased in patients assigned to the heparin plus aspirin group versus aspirin alone, 6.3% versus 3.9% with a highly significant p-value. In conclusion, the ICC-3 trial does not support the hypothesis that aspirin plus heparin is better than aspirin alone in patients presenting with acute myocardial infarction who undergo revascularization via thrombolysis. Yeah, well, ISIS-3 is um, not, as ex not as exciting as, as CAST trial. Um, and last week, uh, we talked about the GC2 trial, and one of the comparisons in GC2, just like in ISIS-3, is a comparison of aspirin uh, plus heparin versus aspirin alone in patients with suspected uh, acute myocardial infarction who were going to receive also uh, thrombolysis. Um, and similar to GC2, ISIS-3 showed um, no significant reduction in the primary endpoint of, of all-cause mortality at 35 days for patients who received aspirin plus heparin versus aspirin alone. Um, and there was a significant increase uh, in bleeding events, mainly driven by non-fatal bleeding events, but still a pretty big difference in bleeding events. And the investigators actually uh, did a like a mini meta analysis here where they combined the results from uh, ISIS-3 with GC2 and found that uh, both trials uh, were very similar and showed very uh, very similar uh, treatment effect signals. And even when combined, there was still no difference in all-cause mortality at uh, 35 days. And um, and also, like GC2, ISIS-3 showed no difference between the thrombolytic agents when they compared streptokinase to uh, TPA, uh, as well as uh, anti-streplase. Um, and, and it struck me that we had we definitely had several readers, uh, physician readers, cardiologists, 
who who uh, were seemed pretty excited or interested in talking about GC uh, two for that reason, and they kind of made the point that during their training, they they were sort of surprised to read this this trial. They had either forgot about it or I guess not really paid attention at the time, and they were surprised that they were trained um, to basically use uh, TPA as sort of like the primary agent for thrombolysis. Um, when in fact, it's not better than uh, streptokinase at all in terms of uh, hard endpoint events. And I mean, this is an important point in, in terms of medical evidence generation and clinical translation, similar to how um, the antiarrhythmic drugs suppress PVCs and PVC was a surrogate endpoint, something like TPA versus streptokinase actually increased uh, target vessel patency after uh, thrombolysis was used and, and target vessel patency is also a surrogate endpoint, just like something like PVCs. And um, even though it increased target vessel patency, it translated to no difference whatsoever in endpoints that matter to patients like staying alive or staying alive without significant LV dysfunction or heart failure. So again, I mean, it just emphasizes the point of unless you test a clinical trials uh, rigorously for hard endpoints, um, you you should remain cautious about making claims about what's better or worse, and um, you know, and maybe even sort of allowing that to become sort of standard practice. Of course, TPA was a much more expensive agent than than streptokinase, and um, you know why it became sort of the winner in the market. Uh, is really certainly not driven by by scientific evidence. And I think we also, you know, as a profession, should reflect, need to reflect on those those sorts of things because they still happen all the time. Don't don't you think another another big message, and I remember this, that the whole idea of heparin, so MI is related to clot. Uh, thrombosis was central to, to MIs, and and here um, more antithrombotic. In addition, with you know heparin, the heparin group was more, and that was clearly clearly a, a negative. It was associated with harm, and um, so this sort of message that I took from this and and GC two is that more antithrombotic isn't necessarily better, and that there's a sweet spot. Uh, with these therapies, and um, I, I, I can just tell you at the time, it it, it wasn't it, it, it. This was sort of a surprise finding too, because we all thought that that more adding antithrombotics would be a good thing. Uh, but we see, you know, we we see the increase in bleeding and and no benefit. So I I, I mean I don't know what what do you both think of that idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit, um, when you think about like applying it to what, what would be its context now, I mean, at least in the States and in a lot of places, and I guess developed world, I mean, we're, we're not using thrombolysis, we, we're sort of, we use PCI, and when we think about using anticoagulants, we don't really think about, you know, if we take somebody to the cath lab who has a STEMI, um, you load them with something like 
Plavix or Ticagrelor and, and you load them with aspirin before they go in. And we really don't, you know, they don't leave the lab, at least not in my experience, they don't leave the lab on, an, on additional anticoagulants. Um, so, I mean, that aspect of it in terms of like clinical translation to today, um, you know, I guess, it, I don't know, maybe it doesn't apply too much, or I guess we just learn, learn the lesson in this. Yes. Case. I would say it's the same situation as you earlier when you spoke that young fellows don't even know what cash shows because it's just taken as obvious. But at the time, I'm, I, I remember it is not obvious and, and, um, and, and, and that more antithrombotic or more of anything, if you are adding, adding therapy that has potential harm, then it, it ought to be studied in, in. Well, so, uh, so sorry, so, you know, I, I said that it doesn't translate to today and, and I sort of forgot a very obvious example of where we see this all the time. And I, I was on service this week and it came up multiple times, which is a patient who either doesn't have a diagnosis of CAD or maybe they at least haven't had an MI in a while and they have AFib, so they're being anticoagulated for that. And then they have a STEMI and they go to the cath lab. And um, then the question is when they leave the cath lab, they're loaded with aspirin, they're on aspirin, they're on another antiplatelet agent, say ticagrelor, clopidogrel. And of course, they're going to continue on their anticoagulant. And the question is, okay, how long do they really, should we keep them on all three agents? And it's still, it's a controversy. Um, and I, I think it is true that less is more. Um, and we really are speculating now, like some the different attendings sort of have different uh, things they like to follow. For example, some will say do it for seven days, do it for 30 days. My preference is to have people on two agents when they're discharged from the hospital. Um, and yeah, so I guess it, it isn't true. I mean, I do think these lessons still may apply. Um, so yeah, you're right. I, I've they looked are, at they are still. <laughs> I've looked at the, I I look at a lot of trials every week, and I've looked at a lot of evidence. And I will tell you the, the post PCI anti thrombotic regimen, is so difficult for me to understand uh, because there's so many variables. There's how many stents, what kind of stents, how big a stent, you know what 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 you know. What all these other factors and uh, the the trial space, and then if you throw in atrial fibrillation and the whole issue of antithrombotics for that, yes. But all of this, all of this is a space that we, we we need to study. And I have a sense that you're right that, and and I think we're seeing that that more and more people are post PCI have this sense that there's a general movement towards towards less is more. But these trials that we reported ISIS-3 particularly showed that more antithrombotic uh, therapy to prevent recurrent clot um, was, was harmful. And uh, I'm not sure we would have known that had this not been randomized in this way. Now, you know, it's sort of interesting. Both these trials, uh, ISIS-3 and, and GC-2, did show this very small reduction from like zero to seven days on the order of like less than half a percent that after that seven day period was up and the anticoagulation was stopped, it, 
it, call it a catch up or whatever it is. And then by 35 days, basically the results were essentially the same. Um, so, I mean, there was that sort of little wrinkle with these, um, but, you know, but yeah. Dr. Ruzier, any closing comments? I think this has been a good conversation. All right, I'm getting a thumbs up and um, so another podcast uh, about two really important trials, especially CAST, and I was excited to talk about it. And thanks for listening. And remember, uh, if you like the podcast, give it a rating, uh, write a little review. Uh, these things help, help other people find it. So thank you very much for your attention.